your Bible to Judges chapter 8. Judges chapter 8. Let's stand together as we pray. Father, we're humbled by your love for us. The fact that you tell us, Jesus, that we're the hope of your calling, that your inheritance is the saints, Lord, the body of Christ. And God, we just ask that your spirit would move, that you would work. We welcome you here, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you can do more in a moment than we can do in a lifetime. Pray for those that need encouragement, that you would provide it. Those that need healing, Lord, hearts to be restored, conviction, salvation. Lord, you do what only you can do. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The unthinkable has happened. God calls a scared man by the name of Gideon who's hiding from the Midianites to lead the children of God. God says, you're a mighty man of valor. Gideon looks around and says, who, me? A mighty man of valor? God says, yes, you, Gideon. You're going to be used to lead my people. 32,000 soldiers show up from Israel's camp to face their enemy of 135,000. God says, you've got too many. God reduces the force of the Israelites down to just 300 men. Gideon marches with these 300 men. God brings the victory. He causes confusion amongst the camp of the Midianites. They begin to kill one another. That's chapter 7. Now as we go into chapter 8, we're going to see this continued military operation under Gideon's leadership. But unfortunately, the end of the chapter also brings us to the downfall of Gideon And the downfall of the children of Israel. So verse 1 of chapter 8. Now the men of Ephraim said to him, Why have you done this to us by not calling us when you went to fight with the Midianites? And they reprimanded him sharply. Ephraim, their descendants of Joseph, of the tribe of Joseph. Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. But Ephraim very quickly became the stronger tribe They wanted to have preeminence. They were offended that they went to war without them. However, the message went out to all of the children of Israel, including Ephraim, and they didn't respond. But now they're coming to Gideon, and they reprimand him sharply. What does that remind you of? A little visit to the principal's office? A little lecture from mom and dad? Maybe the boss reprimanding you sharply? And they're saying... Why have you done this by not calling us to fight? You'll find that sometimes the greatest resistance when you choose to enter into the battle that God has called you to is amongst the people of God. God says, I want you to go. I want you to do this. And unfortunately, you would think the response of God's people would be like far out. That is awesome. Praise the Lord for this victory that's just been won. But for some reason, there's those that choose to oppose and discourage the work of the Lord. We don't want to be believers that live in the valley of petty arguments. They're not seeing the victory that's just been won. And when we begin to bicker and complain and see ourselves and wanting to have credit instead of God have the glory, we're going to cause great damage. Jesus died. 
He rose from the dead. The ultimate victory has been won. We have a job to do. We don't have time to live in that place of petty arguments. This would be very discouraging, I would think, for Gideon as he's just come back from this great victory with a little bit more to do. Notice Gideon's response, verse 2. So he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abizer? God has delivered into the hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger toward him was subsided when he said that. Gideon could have allowed his pride to get very puffy in this moment. Wait a second, I gave you guys word and you didn't respond. But instead, he takes the position of humility and he says, what I've done doesn't even compare to what you guys have done, Ephraim. Because apparently Ephraim did get into the battle and they were able to defeat two kings. They bring in the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. And so here Gideon shows meekness. He shows diplomacy. Gideon's not concerned with who gets the credit for this. He's more concerned with God's glory. In Proverbs, it says this, that a soft, a soft answer turns away wrath. And isn't that true? Someone can be reprimanding you sharply. They can be angry. But when you choose to have a soft tone, a soft answer, many times it deflects their anger. Gideon's used here to be a person that brings unity. We go on into verse 4. When Gideon came to the Jordan, he and 300 men who were with him crossed over, exhausted but still in pursuit. Even though they've been discouraged, even though they've been reprimanded sharply, these 300 men, notice God didn't lose one soldier, they continue in hot pursuit of the enemy even though they're exhausted. When you say, I want my life to count, and you enter into God's battlefield, no longer sitting on the bleachers. There will be opposition from within, but also there's going to be times where there's just complete exhaustion. You say, Lord, I want my family to, to honor you. We don't want to just go the direction of the world. Sometimes you're going to be exhausted in that task. You say, Lord, I want to love my neighbors that you've given me on my street and in my apartment complex and my, my coworkers. There'll be times that you're exhausted. God may call you into the children's ministry here, or the youth ministry here. There'll be times that you'll be exhausted in the midst of, of working with kids. Amen? And there's a real art in learning to continue in the face and the presence of exhaustion and weariness. And if you think that there's something wrong with you because you're weary, no. It happens. It's part of it. But what do we do when we're exhausted? Where do we go when we're exhausted? I bet that some of you tonight are at that place. You're like, I'm just wore out. I'm tired. I didn't feel like coming tonight, not because I don't love the Lord and I don't like to go to church, but I am just clean spent. Not only am I spent, but I'm discouraged. What, what do I do? I'm exhausted. Well, first we consider Jesus. In Hebrews 12, verse 3, it says, for consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. We'll tend to think that we've got the short end of the stick unless we meditate upon Jesus Christ. It would have been easy for these 300 guys to go, what in the world? 
We've just been reprimanded. In just a few more verses, we'll find that no one's even going to give them a sandwich. No one's even going to give them a peanut butter and jelly. But they're going to continue in pursuit of the enemy because God has called them. And we'll think that we have been mistreated or we have the short end of the stick or God's called us to something that's too laborious unless we think of Christ. We think of what he went through on the cross, the hostility that he endured. You think about sometimes when you see on the news, when you read on the internet, some horrific act of of violence, and it weighs on your soul, and you go, how could someone do that, and how could someone treat someone like that? And we're sinners, but yet we still can relate to the hostility of sin at times. Think if you're absolutely righteous like Christ, never sinned, never in the presence of sin, And all of sin from all of mankind is put upon Jesus Christ. And he had to endure that and be punished for it and all all that he went through. And so we put our focus upon the cross. But not only do we consider Jesus when we're exhausted, but we come to Jesus. In Matthew 11, 28 through 30, he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I love that. Those are requirements I can meet. Come to me if you're wore out. If you've got a burden that you can't carry, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you're exhausted tonight, if you're weary tonight, you feel like giving up, consider Jesus But even more importantly, come to Jesus. Come to him. Take his yoke and receive his rest. Verse 5. Then he said to the men of Sukkoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they're exhausted. And I'm pursuing Ziba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. The kings are running. They've been fighting all night long. They say, could you please just give me a scone? Could you please give me a roast beef sandwich? I'll take waffles, beans and rice, a loaf of bread, anything. I'm exhausted. Verse 6, and the leaders of Sukkoth said, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna now in your hand that we should give bread to your army? They're doubting and mocking the claim of Gideon. Saying, really? He's in your hand? If he's in your hand, then we'll give you bread. But show me the proof first. In Galatians 6, verse 10, it says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Gideon's not even asking them to go on the front lines. He's not even saying, come with me to go get these two two kings, the Midianite kings. He's simply saying, would you support the work? And when there's a need that comes before us, we think of Galatians 6, 10. Let's do good to all, but especially to those of the household of faith. Verse 7, so Gideon said, For this cause, when the Lord has delivered Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and the briars. (laughs) Is Gideon a transformed man? He's no longer this weak and timid guy hiding in a wine press. He's saying, you're going to regret not giving me lunch. Let me tell you, buddy. He's not doubting whether he's going to experience the full victory, whether he's going to get these two kings. He says, after I'm done getting these two kings, I'm going to come and I'm going to take you to the woodshed and you're going to remember it. 
verse 8. Then he went up from there to Penuel and spoke in the same way. So he comes to the next city requesting food. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Sukkoth had answered. He gets the same response. So we also spoke to the men of Penuel saying, when I come back in peace, I will tear down this tower. Now Ziba and Zalmuna were at Karkor and their armies with them, about 15,000, all who were left of the army of the people of East for 120,000 men drew drew the sword had fallen. We know the Midianites were 135,000 because of this verse. 120,000 had already died in in chapter 7. 15,000 are left that Gideon is pursuing. This is nothing like the night before in going up against 135,000, but still 300 guys against 15,000 is not very good odds. We look at verse 11. Then Gideon went up the road of those who dwell in the tents on the east of Nobah and Joghah, and he attacked the army while the camp felt secure. So he waited till the enemy was secure. So they were thinking that there was no threat, and he attacked at that time when the defenses were down. Verse 12, when Ziba and Zalmunna fled, he pursued them. He took the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. He experiences the victory, complete victory. It would have been easy for Gideon to go, you know, we've got 120 out of 135,000. So we're going to kick back. We're going to take it easy. We're going to be done, done here. But Gideon goes for the complete victory. And the same way in our lives, when we're struggling and wrestling with sin, we don't want to settle for partial victories. We don't want to settle for, well, I was better than before I got saved, or I've dealt with this struggle in my life 50%, but pressing into God's grace and God's strength to say, I want to see God bring complete victory and deliverance in my life. In verse 13, then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle from the ascent of Perez, and he caught a young man of the men of Sukkoth and interrogated him. And he wrote down, from the leaders of Sukkoth and its elders, 77 men. Gideon catches a young man, asks questions of the young man, interrogates him, finds out who the 77 elders are from this city Sukkoth who would not share food with Gideon. Then he came to the men of Sukkoth and said, Here are Ziba and Zalmunna, about whom you ridiculed me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna now in your hand? that we should give bread to your weary men. Who's mocking now? Gideon actually physically brings the two kings and saying, you guys didn't think that I was going to get these two guys? They're in my hands. Verse 16, And he took the elders of the city and the thorns of the wilderness and the briars, and with them he taught the men of Sukkoth. If you've ever had somebody say, hey, you pick a switch, and then they cut the switch and whip the back of your legs, or whip, the, whip your butt, <laughs> or whip your back, or whatever, you remember it. I remember one time my grandma decided that that was going to be a good idea. Now, I was used to getting spanked. My brother and I, my parents, you know, they believed in uh, the rod of discipline upon the seat of learning, you know what I'm saying? So, 
I, I was used to getting a spanking uh, on my bottom, you know, where there's a little bit of extra padding. But my grandma, who's now home with the Lord, so I can tell this story. You know, my brother and I were in the bedroom and not going to sleep like she had planned. And so she said, out in the hall, and she had this switch that she'd gotten from the backyard, and she just took it out on my legs, and she just tore our, our legs uh, apart and put us back to bed. And I had a really bad temper growing up, and I'm laying in my bed, and I'm like, I'm going to kill her. I'm going to kill Grandma. <laughs> my, my older brother, Matt, he's like, take it easy. If you go out there, she's going to whip you again. So... <laughs> Just calm down there. But I remember it, you know? And here's, here's Gideon, and, and he, he's out there teaching these guys a lesson because they wouldn't support the work of the Lord. Now, whenever we go through Scripture, we've got to examine it. And God doesn't give us his conclusion on Gideon's actions. So we're left to, to evaluate, was this the appropriate response? Was Gideon in the right place here by taking the 77 elders and doing this. And some would say yes. There's some preachers, pastors, commentaries that would say yes, that this was important, that these men needed to, to learn this lesson and learn to, to support the, the front line of the attack. Others would say that Gideon was being too harsh here, and these are the beginning signs of him starting to, to compromise. Ultimately, we don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. God doesn't come out and say, Gideon was wrong for doing this. However, when we do contrast this to David's life in a similar context, when people mistreated him, even in the context of conflict and war, David chose to be gracious. And which one lines up more with the heart of Jesus Christ? I think David's response is better. But you decide for yourself as you read through that. In verse 16, and he took the elders of the city and the thorns of the wilderness and the briars, and with them he taught the men of Sukkoth. In verse 17, then he tore down the tower of Penuel and he killed the men of the city. So he goes to the next city, to Penuel, and he kills the men of the city because they didn't come and rally around him. We must conclude from Penuel that there has to be a little bit more to this particular city because he didn't do it to Sukkoth. We don't know for sure, but it's possible that Penuel, they supported the Midianites. And because of this, Gideon decides execution and not just the thrashing with the thorns. In verse 18, and he said to Ziba and Zalmuda, what kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? So now he's talking to the two kin kings of Midian. This can be a little bit confusing of like, what is Gideon doing? Who's he talking to? So he dealt with Sukkoth and Penuel, but now he's got to deal with these two Midianite kings. And he says, what kind of men did you kill at Tabor? So they answered and said, as you are, so were they. Each one resembled the son of the king. Now this is some biblical trash talking right here. That's what's taking place. Is these two kings, even though they know they're defeated, they're saying, you know what? The guys that we killed, they look just like you. We killed your family. That's exactly what they're declaring to Gideon. It was these men that caused Gideon to hide in the wine press. Verse 19, then he said, they were my brothers and the sons of my mother. This is Gideon saying, this is my family that you killed. As the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I would have not killed you. 
So we do see with Gideon that he is using justice in who he executed. He's not just going around executing people. In verse 20, and he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise, kill him. But the youth would not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a youth. So he turned to his oldest son, and he says, I want you to go kill these two kings. And his son was afraid to do it. In verse 21, so Ziba and Zalmunna said, rise yourself and kill us, for as a man is, so is his strength. So Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on their camel's necks. As we see this execution take place, we have to remember that the Midianites were their enemies, the Midianites were their oppressors, that Midianites were coming in and raiding, the Midianites were coming in and murdering. And so God in no way is an author of genocide. And so please don't misunderstand that in Gideon's actions and the destruction of the Midianites. Now let's start to focus in a little bit on Gideon's character. It's left for question if the thrashing of the men of Sukkoth was too harsh. But now we definitely start to see Gideon get off track a little bit. We see him start to, to deviate. And I want us to not only begin to look a little closer at the heart and the life of Gideon, but also to look at our own hearts and our own lives this evening, because it's very easy to drift from the Lord. It's very easy to get off track in the same ways that Gideon did. And the first is that he took the crescent ornaments that were on the, the camel's necks. These are expensive ornaments. They had great, great value. And Gideon's taking these for himself instead of keeping his hands off of the gold and off of the riches. In verse 22, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son, and your grandsons also. You have delivered us from the hand of Midian. Interesting request from the children of Israel. Gideon, we want you to rule over us because you've delivered us from the hand of Midian. Why did God reduce their army down to 300? Do you remember? So that Israel would know that it was God who brought the victory. It wasn't Gideon. God chose the least qualified person, the one who was the most scared, the one that had to have a fleece in order to be answered by God, God reduced the army, so it was very clear that God won the victory, but yet Israel still gives the glory to man instead of to God. That's our tendency, isn't it? And we also oftentimes want to give the leadership, the rule of our lives over to a person instead of God. And we've titled this series, I Rule, because that's what they did in the book of Judges. They did what was right in their own eyes. Judges is all about who's going to be in control of your life. And our tendency sometimes is even to see God's working in God's hand and instead of attributing it to God, to attribute it to a person and start to follow a person and ask them to take control of our lives. One commentator that I read put it this way, that anything that's good becomes very dangerous when you elevate it to the wrong level of idolatry. For example, a cow. A cow is a very good thing. Hopefully you've had some beef today. It's a great thing. I like cows next to some potatoes on my plate. Amen? You know what I'm saying? But over in India, they don't eat cows. They worship cows. Cows are deity, and cows are running around everywhere. 
So you have people dying of starvation and absolute poverty while there's cows everywhere. There's a good thing that's been elevated to a dangerous status of idolatry. Gideon is a man who's been used by God. It's a good thing. But Gideon becomes dangerous when he's elevated to the wrong level. You never want to look to a man. You never want to look to a woman. You look to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one that can effectively rule your life, that to be the Lord of your life. Anyone else, anything else, any idol is going to lead to destruction in our lives, but Jesus leads to freedom as we surrender our lives to him. Gideon's response to this, but Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my sons rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Yea, for Gideon, he got this right. He said, absolutely, I'm not going to rule over you. God, the Lord, is the one to rule over you. In 1 Samuel, we find the nation of Israel rejecting God's leadership for the leadership of a king. So God gave to them Saul. They wanted something they could see instead of having to serve and follow an invisible God. Even though that Gideon says the right thing, he's saying the right words, his actions and the rest of the chapter show that his heart really wanted to be king. He wanted to be recognized. He wanted to be remembered. He wanted to be followed. So he gets the words right, but his actions don't match those words. Verse 24, then Gideon said to them, I'd like to make a request of you. So, hey, I don't want to be king, but I just got one little request for you guys. That each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So the Midianites were Ishmaelites and they wore golden earrings. So if you think that you're really cool because you're the first person to wear gold earrings, no, they've been doing it for a long time. And dudes have been wearing gold earrings for a long time. So it's nothing new. So they've got all of these gold earrings. And here Gideon says, I just want one from each of you. In verse 25, so they answered, we will gladly give them, and they spread out a garment, and each man threw into the earrings from his plunder. Now the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. This is estimated to be about 50 pounds of gold. The price right now today, I looked it up, of gold per ounce is 16 to 1800 per ounce. So let's take the lower number. And we say 1600 times 16 ounces gives us 25,600 per pound. If you've got one pound of gold, you're carrying around $25,000. And you think of him having 50 pounds of gold just in the earrings. This is a ton of money. There's even more gifts that are lavished upon him. Beside crescent ornaments, pennants, and purple robes, which were on the kings of Midian, and beside the chains that were around their camels' necks. Why is Gideon going off the wagon here? Because he thinks he's entitled to something. He thinks he's entitled to some riches, to some gold that's going to elevate him above God's people. And we need to be careful when we follow God's call and God moves. And yes, 
we made a tremendous sacrifice, but it was a privilege to be a part of his work, that somehow we come off the battlefield with this entitled complex. And we go, you know, you should really give me something. That something a little bit extra belongs to me. I need to be elevated above just the normal person who hasn't sacrificed in, in such a way. I need, to be, I need to be recognized. I need to have some financial security. And we'd like to think that we're all above the temptation of money, wouldn't we? But it's been said, and I think it's, it's true, what, what normally brings destruction is money, sexual sin, and pride, doesn't it? Those are the things that seem to run deep inside of us. And we say that we trust God and trust God for our needs. But think about Gideon. Here he has access to a retirement plan in a millisecond. He doesn't have to worry about anything from this moment forward by simply making a request. And here goes his heart. His heart's going away from the Lord and now is latching upon this gold. As we look throughout Scripture, it's more difficult to handle success than adversity. We're saying, well, I'll take a shot at the success. I've had enough adversity. It's more difficult to, to navigate great riches, possibly, than even intense poverty. How is Gideon going to use all of this gold that has been placed before him? Here's a simple question that goes into our hearts and our lives. What's our emotional state connected to our bank account? If there's X amount of dollars in our bank account, what's your emotional state? If that gets depleted to a lot less, what's your emotional state? That starts to indicate where our trust is. This is why giving is so important. I find in my life, if I'm not giving, if I'm not tithing, if I'm not investing in the work of the Lord, my heart gets grossly greedy when it comes to the area of money. When God asks us to tithe, to give our first fruits, of what comes in to give the, the top 10% to the work of the Lord, it's not that God's broke. It's not that God's going, man, what am I going to do without your money? He's raising kids. That's what he's doing. He's raising me. He's raising you. And something happens to our heart when we tithe and we realize it all belongs to the Lord. Not just the first 10%, but God, it all belongs to you. And giving is the best antidote to keep our hearts from going the same direction as Gideon. If you're in ministry, be very careful when it comes to God's money. There's been a lot of ministries that have been ruined over how God's funds have, have been used. And here at RMC, we want to be above reproach in that. We get audited and we have reviews to have outside people coming in and, and, and looking in. But be careful. It's, it's the Lord's money. It can get a hook in us a lot easier than we, we may think. In verse 27, Then Gideon made it into an ephod and set it up in his city Orpha. And all of the Israelites played the harlot with it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his house. What's an ephod? An ephod was the vest that the high priests wore. It contained the Urim and the Thurim, Thummim, which they determined the will of God through that in the Old Testament. So Gideon now makes a really fancy ephod. It's the bling-bling version of the, the ephod. And as we study this closely, he set it up in his city, in his city. The tabernacle at this time was in Ephraim, but he wants this ephod to be in his city. 
This seems to be Gideon's attempt to say, I want to be remembered. I want, I want people to remember what happened and, and the gold that came, came out of this. It became a snare. People came to look at it. They became attracted to it. And before you know it, they're worshiping. And God says they played the harlot, meaning that they were unfaithful to the Lord. That's how God sees it when we go into idolatry. And it was a snare to Gideon and to his house. Now, this is the point for Gideon to repent. To realize, you know what? I'm getting tripped up by this ephod. I'm starting to worship it. My house is starting to worship it. All of Israel's starting to worship it. It's time to burn this sucker. It's time to get rid of this vest. This is bringing us away from the one true living God. But he'd become attached to it. Let's be very careful to keep our eyes on Jesus. An idol is when we allow something visible to take the place of our reverence and worship for God. We can't see God at any time, but yet here's this visible thing. And before you know it, we have taken our eyes off of Jesus Christ. Verse 28, thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel, so they lifted their heads no more. And the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. What we don't see happening is the blessing leading Israel to transformation. They have stability. They've got deliverance from their oppressors, but their hearts haven't been won by the Lord. Sometimes people will say, God, just get me out of financial difficulty and I'll serve you. God, just give me my health and I'll serve you. God, give me a job and I'll serve you. God, help me kick this nasty habit and I'll serve you. God, save my marriage and I'll serve you. And God does it, and yet they don't serve the Lord. It didn't result in the winning of their heart. And when God blesses and when he moves and when he delivers, hopefully that blessing leads us to him in the transformation of our hearts. In verse 29, Then Jerubbabel the son of Joash went and dwelt in his own house. Gideon had 70 sons who were his own offspring, for he had many wives. Now what's up with this? 70 sons. How do you even remember all their names? Maybe he was like George Foreman and he just called them all George Foreman. It's like there's Gideon 1, Gideon 2. Hey, you're Gideon 69. I doubt these guys even got a birthday card from dad. This is a clear sign of Gideon acting like a king. This is what kings did to try to develop their dynasty. This wasn't normal behavior of Israelite men. Yes, Israelite men practiced polygamy. They may have two or three wives, but he had many wives because he was trying to build up his name. He wanted everyone to make sure that they knew of the household of Gideon. Now, if any of you guys are thinking any idea about polygamy, because it was practiced in the, in the Old Testament, let me try to shoot that one right out of your minds, okay? One is the New Testament doesn't teach that at all. And I'll just shoot straight with you. Man, that's foolishness right there. Just you do the math on that one. No, thank you, right? It's a one-woman man for life. And you never see women wanting to practice having multiple husbands, right? <laughs> Ladies are like... Like, one's enough. Thank you very much, right? So yes, there's polygamy in the Old Testament, but the fruit of the polygamy was never good. But the point here with Gideon, Jerubbabel was his nickname, 
is that he's trying to build a dynasty by having all of these wives and sons. In verse 31, And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, whose name he called Abimelech. And if you look up the meaning of the name Abimelech, it's my father a king. My father a king. So Gideon's actions are becoming very clear. The Hebrews were more concerned with the meaning of a name than anything else. May the Holy Spirit speak to our hearts. These snares are very real. Gideon's a man who loved God, had tremendous faith, took incredible risks, followed God's call. And if Gideon can get tripped up by money and the love of money, if Gideon can get tripped up by pride, saying, I want people to remember me. I want people to memorialize the the sacrifice that I made. If he can go into idolatry, guess what? We can go into idolatry. We need to be very careful that our ego, our pride, it gets nailed to the cross, that that doesn't sneak into our hearts where we just want God to be remembered. In verse 32, Now Gideon the son of Joash died at the good old age, and he was buried in the tomb of Joash his father in Orpha of the Abazirites. Passes away, he's, he's buried. Gideon goes off the scene. So it was as soon as Gideon was dead that the children of Israel again played the harlot with Baals and made Baal Bereth their God. Baal Bereth means Baal of the covenant. A covenant was a solemn contract intended to the one true living God. They were making a covenant with Baal. The God of their covenant had become Baal. They went right back to their old ways. Their hearts were never changed. And this is why the book of Judges shows us that we need a Savior, that we need Jesus Christ, that it's only Jesus that can transform our hearts and transform our lives. Apart from walking with him and staying close to him, we're going to return to the things that God has delivered us out of. Verse 34, Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God. They had spiritual amnesia. They put God out of their mind. They forgot the Lord who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. It is possible to put God out of your mind. They couldn't continue in the rebellion that they were in with God on the forefront of their mind. They didn't remember the Lord their God. There's so much importance of remembering in the scriptures. Remember who God is. Remember what he's done in your life. Remember, as we sang tonight, the blood of Jesus Christ. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. We never want to forget who God is and what he's done and the deliverance that he's brought in our lives. So verse 35, nor did they show kindness to the house of Jerubbabel in accordance with the good which he had done for Israel. So even though that Gideon ended bad, God thought that there was still honor that was due Gideon because of how he was used by the Lord. Honor where honor is due. And Gideon's life in no way is perfect, but the end of this shows that in God's eyesight that the children of Israel should have showed honor to his family. So let's try to wrap up the life of Gideon tonight here in the last just couple minutes because Judges moves on, on quickly. What are some lessons that we learn about Gideon over the last three weeks. The first is, is that Gideon is in the hall of faith. 
in Hebrews chapter 11. It lists God's heroes in a sense, and Gideon is one of those. And there's many that aren't included in Hebrews 11 that you think would be there, but we find Gideon is in that hall of faith. When you read of him in Hebrews 11, you'll find none of his mistakes. Why? Because it's under the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. All of those in Hebrews 11 had tremendous faults and sins and shortcomings, but it's cleansed under the blood of Jesus Christ. God calls and uses fallen people, and Gideon is an example of that. He calls the weak, he calls those who are, are not qualified, and he equips them for his glory. So if you're looking at your weaknesses, and you're saying, well, God can't use me, well, Gideon's life cancels that out. God's looking for someone who's available, who will hear his voice, and will go forward. I think we saw a transformation that happened in Gideon's life as he met with the angel of the Lord. We know the angel of the Lord was Jesus. Transformation in our lives will happen as we meet with Jesus Christ. Nothing less, no, no substitutes. Why does God call the weak and the unqualified for his glory so that he receives the glory for the victory? And then tonight, as we end, there's this exclamation point of stay close to the Lord of stay close to the Lord. You've probably noticed it in scripture and in life, it's difficult to finish well. There's many throughout scripture that end on a very sour note and you just go, oh, and you groan. And they're great men and they're great women. And we've also seen it throughout church history. It seems like a song that just continues to be played and to us, it should be something that humbles us and goes, wow, if Gideon could end in this way, then, oh, it'd be so easy for me to get off track. Not that all of Gideon's life is a failure, not that he didn't love the Lord, but he didn't end well. And more than how we start and even mistakes that we make along the way is we want to end well. It's always impressive and attractive and most importantly, glorifying to God when someone ends well. And this is what I find in my own life, and I think that you probably find it true in yours as well, is it's really easy to get a lot more focused on where everybody else is at with the Lord than where we're at with the Lord. We start looking at going, well, this person really, they need to get their act together here. Or, you know, my, my spouse, my kids, this, that, the other. And then sometimes even as churches, we start to go, well, you know, that church over there, they really need to get their act together in this over, over here. And we're really good at seeing it in everybody else's life. And then in our own lives, we put up self-righteous phrases like, well, I'm better than I used to be, or I'm better than 95% of the guys in the church, or I'm, I'm better than 95% of the, the women in the church, or and we don't even begin to see accurately the compromise in our own lives. I, I wonder if Gideon saw it accurately. If there was a little bit of a bell that was going off inside of him when he's thrashing the guys with the thorns. Hey, you're being a little harsh here, Gideon. If there was a little bell that went off inside of him when he's counting all these earrings of gold. There was something that went off inside of, what are you doing with this ephod? Why are you putting it in your city? 
Why aren't you sending this ephod up to where the priests are at with the tabernacle? Something should have been resounding inside of him when he's worshiping and everyone around him is worshiping this ephod. Maybe around sun 47, something should have gone off in his mind. Like, why you got all these wives? Why do you have another wife and another wife and another son and then a concubine on top of that? And then you named him Abimelech, which means my father is, is king. And what we don't find in Gideon's life as he ends here is this acknowledgement of, oh, Lord, would you forgive me? So as we close tonight and we pray, let's give room for the Holy Spirit just to identify. Psalms 139 says, search me and know me. God, identify these things in my life that I'm protecting so closely that you want to expose. Now, please hear this. This is a loving father that delights in you, that has a great plan for you, and he knows how this compromise is destroying our lives. So he's not heavy-handed. It's not his judgment. He's not angry. It's his love saying, oh, I got so much more for you. I want you to turn away from this. I want you to be close to me. I want you to, to finish well. I don't think people accidentally finish well. I think they finish well because they intentionally stayed close to Christ. They intentionally were a keeper of their heart. In Proverbs 4.23, it says, keep your heart because out of it flows the issues of life. Keep your heart with all diligence because out of it flows the issue of life. Let's pray. Father, we see...